Well, please grab your Bibles with me to Joshua chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8 is where we'll be today. As we continue to follow along with Israel, as they have left Egypt, they've left 40 years in the wilderness, and now they've entered into the promised land and they begin driving out the Canaanites who were inhabiting that land. This is a land that God gave to them. And he said, go, it's yours, but there are people in the way. Yet God has promised to go before them. God has promised them success as they follow him into blessing. And we saw back in chapter 5 that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is the commander of this army. The Lord Jesus is the one leading them as they conquer their enemies. I want to perhaps start with giving once again the summary that I've made for the book of Joshua to have this on your minds. Yahweh keeps His promises by powerfully saving His people through faith and purging the evil among them. Therefore, we shall courageously follow Him into blessing. That's what's going on in this book, and we see Israel following Him. Last week, of course, Israel tried to take Ai. That's what we looked at in chapter 7. Israel tried to conquer this measly little enemy force, but they couldn't do it because they're in the camp. This week, they go back at it. They have a battle against Ai once again, and there is success. Before we get into the text, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you have preserved this for us. Lord, you've told us that these things happen to them as an example for us. And Lord, we look to this account in the Old Testament, not as some irrelevant old piece of uh, iniquity here, but this is your inspired word. This is scripture. This instructs us even today as we look to what you have said and make application. God, we rely on your spirit to make application in our hearts, and we ask together that you would enable me to preach that though... I am fallen by nature and by choice. God, that you would use me in spite of my sin, that you would use me in spite of my weaknesses. And we ask together that your word would be clear to your people here this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, last week Israel couldn't take Ai, and this week they will have a successful conquest of Ai. Let's start together in chapter 8. After Achan and his family have been put to death and all of Achan's things have been destroyed, it's time for Israel to start again in this battle. And let's read what the Lord says. Joshua chapter 8, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king just as you did to Jericho and its king. You shall take only its spoil and its cattle as plunder for yourselves. Set an ambush for the city behind it. Well, there's a lot to see right there if we just pause for a few moments and consider God gave a special promise here to Joshua, the leader of the people. There's a special promise here that they will take Ai. 
unlike the last chapter, he has now been told, I am giving you this city, I'm giving you the king, I'm giving you the people, I'm giving you the land, there will be success. And you are to do to it just as you did to Jericho. Now, when he says that, he's talking about destroying. They destroyed Jericho. He's not talking about the means by which it will be destroyed. And this is quite fascinating. I'm sure you remember just a couple chapters ago, this famous Bible story where Jericho fell by a miracle. The people walked around the city, they marched around, they blew trumpets, and the walls fell miraculously. Jericho fell by a miracle, there's no doubt about it. But Ai was to be taken through ordinary means. Just like in their exodus, the Egyptians were killed behind them by miracle, the parting of the Red Sea, and then the Red Sea came back together and drowned the Egyptians. But then just a few chapters later, they had to fight the Amalekites through ordinary means, didn't they? They had to go into hand-to-hand combat. Well, this is quite similar. Jericho fell by a miracle, but Ai was to be taken ordinarily. And we're back to something positive here. We didn't have this in the last chapter, but we have it right here. We're back to this opening phrase from God to Joshua, do not fear. If you remember back in chapter 1, God is telling Joshua over and over again, be strong, be courageous, do not fear. In the last chapter, there was reason to fear. In the last chapter, there was reason for Israel to have pause because there was sin in the camp and God has to purge the evil among them, doesn't He? But now He says, do not fear. He's changed the big glowing do not enter sign or caution sign to a green light and a thumbs up. Go ahead. I'm giving it to you. Because the presence of sin in the camp, well, it brought about fear. It brought about an obstacle to the blessing, didn't it? Sin blocks off blessing. Evil must be purged. Well, now that the evil was purged among them, God set forth a plan. And this is God's plan. I find this quite fascinating too. You see that at the end of verse 2? This was God's plan. We're going to set an ambush here, Joshua. Wow, that's pretty fascinating. But we do well to remember that Yahweh, of course, is the commander of the army. And so here he is, giving some strategy to to Joshua. Now, some of the strategy was left up to Joshua. We'll see here in the the verses that follow. He chose 30,000 men. He picked out 30,000 men to set an ambush, and he decided to use a smaller group as bait. And this this is quite interesting. He puts this big group behind the city, and he has a smaller group go off into the the valley. And so when the residents of Ai see this small group, just like they did in the last chapter, they see this small group coming forward, they say, oh, we've done this before. We can take these guys. And so they're going to come out and seek to destroy them. And as they go out, as Israel's fleeing from them, their city is left open. Their city is ready to be made desolate. This ambush was God's idea which informs us, this is just a little something we can pick up along the way. There are a couple things like this. We can pick up that God is not opposed to strategy and tactics, is He? He uses means to accomplish His purposes. And here we see He's using some tactic, using some strategy to get this done. And Joshua himself displayed great leadership through this event. I want you to drop down to verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. Joshua sent away the big group of people, the ones who were going to lie in ambush. He sent them away. They went to the place of ambush and remained between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. But look at where Joshua is. He spent that night among the people. 
Joshua's going with the smaller group. He's going with the bait group. There aren't a whole lot of leaders out there who say, yeah, I'll be part of the bait. Because you know what happens sometimes is the bait gets chewed up, doesn't it? Now, Joshua's quite confident in the Lord's plan. He has great faith here. But this is also a great example of servant leadership, isn't it? Joshua sent the group behind, and he stayed with the smaller group. Leaders are to set plans and then display courage as they live these plans out. This is a great point of leadership that we can take away. They're to lead with sacrifice. They're to lead with courage. And the men who are here this morning, God's calling you to lead in some capacity. God's calling you to lead. I want to ask you, are you leading with sacrifice and courage? Are you leading with sacrifice and courage? This is a great example set for us. And of course, it just leads to the greatest example of leadership, which is Jesus Christ, who gave the ultimate sacrifice of His own life. But that's true godly leadership is both sacrifice and courage. Do you have opportunities today in today's culture to be courageous? You better believe it. Absolutely. And is God using the means of men in His church and in the home to lead into blessing? You better believe it. We are to lead with great sacrifice and courage to be on the front lines as Joshua was. And we also have to recognize that the people here displayed great faithfulness to Joshua's plan. It wasn't that he said, this is the plan, and he went out and no one was behind him. He had tens of thousands of people coordinating with him, willing to follow his direction, which is marvelous and very rare. Very rarely do you get that many people following a leader, but they were. And they're putting into practice what they promised. Turn back with me to Joshua chapter 1, all the way back to the first chapter, Look at what the people said. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 16, this is what they had pledged to their leader. In Joshua 1, 16, it says, They answered Joshua, saying, All that you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. I remember, uh, not quite like it was yesterday, but I remember when uh, Melissa and I were engaged, we were talking about the places we would go because she knew that I wanted to be in ministry somewhere. And I didn't know where I wanted to be. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know if I wanted to be a church planter or a youth pastor. Uh, a one-year internship of being a youth pastor, that was more than I needed to know that that wasn't it. Uh, and so we trying out different things. But I remember her saying, wherever you go, I'm going with you no qualifications. That's special, and that's rare. And we see that with the people here. Wherever you send us, we will go. And again, in chapter 4, this is Joshua chapter 4, verse 14, we see their hearts were given to Joshua. They made the pledge with their mouths, and now we see their hearts given over. Joshua 4, 14, on that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel so that they revered him just as they had revered Moses all the days of his life. A sacrificial, courageous leader is worth revering, worth following, and that's what we see among the people. And here we have 
a very powerful combination. We've looked at three things, three elements that have led to this event. First, we've seen God's promise. God has said, I'm giving this place to you. It's king, it's people, it's city, it's land. This is yours. The promise of God is the first and most important element. And what do we see second? But a leader who's willing to strategize, to make plans, and to work with God, and to go where God leads, and to be courageous himself, to be on the front lines and to serve. And third, we see a faithful and willing people, confident in God, confident in the one who's following God, who's leading them. And when you have the promise of God, the faithful leadership, sacrificial faithful leadership, and a willing people, do you know what that's a recipe for? That's a recipe for success, isn't it? That's a recipe for success in the home. That's a recipe for success in the church. That's a recipe for success in our evangelism. When you have all three of those elements coming together, God will be honored, and there will be success for His glory and for His honor. Well, next we see these plans come together. I want to read to you verses 10 to 17, back in Joshua 8. Let's see how this works out. Joshua chapter 8, verse 10. Now Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people, and he went up with the elders of Israel before the people to Ai. Then all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near and arrived in front of the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now there was a valley between him and Ai. And he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. So they stationed the people, all the army that was on the north side of the city, and its rear guard on the west side of the city. And Joshua spent that night in the midst of the valley. It came about when the king of Ai saw it, that the men of the city hurried and rose up early and went out to meet Israel in battle. He and all his people at the appointed place before the desert plain." But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. And all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. So not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who had not gone out after Israel. And they left the city unguarded and pursued Israel." Don't you love it when a plan comes together? <laughs> That's exactly happening the way they wanted it to. Everything was absolutely right. Now, it's likely that the king of Ai and his men were very confident because remember last week, they killed 36 men and they chased them down the hill and the Israelites really were scared. Their warriors were totally terrified. Israel had underestimated Ai last week because of their own sin. Well, this week, Ai underestimated Israel, didn't they? They look at these people and say, oh, well, we've done this before. They did remember it just like it was yesterday. And off they go to attack them. And I love how Joshua here in the midst of them, he instructed them to act defeated. Joshua and all the people pretended, it says, pretended to be defeated. Oh, no, I hope they don't get us, you know, and off they run full of faith, knowing what God was about to do. This was God's plan, knowing that they would be okay. They were feigning fear. So we see just another little tidbit that we can pick up along the way. Deception is sometimes permissible. <laughs> Apparently here in war, God allows deception. Now that's a fun ethical question to kick around for a while. Is it ever okay to deceive somebody else? Well, 
Here it seems it's appropriate, at least when in war. And they feigned fear. They pretended to be defeated. Well, in the middle of this, God speaks into the situation. That's verse 18. Now, Yahweh comes back with the roaring voice. The Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. So Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. The men in ambush rose quickly from their place, and when he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and they quickly set the city on fire. This is quite similar to that event I already mentioned in Exodus 17, where they were fighting the Amalekites, and you remember Moses' hands needed to be raised. And eventually they brought in some material, some big boulders, and had to help out with the situation. Men had to raise up his hands. Well, it's similar here where Joshua is told to stretch out his javelin toward the city. And at that time, God works in the hearts of those who are hiding in ambush, these thousands of warriors waiting until the right time while the Lord tied it all together because God's timing is always perfect, isn't it? And when God is in something like this and He says there's going to be success, He's going to make sure it works out. God loves to use creaturely means to accomplish His divine purposes. And that should just warm your heart, dear Christian, because He doesn't need to. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. But something that just God just enjoys, apparently, is to use us. In Romans chapter 6, it talks about the Christian's role in being identified with Christ. And it says that we are to give ourselves over to God as instruments, as tools in His hand. He doesn't need tools. We need all kinds of tools, don't we? Some of you have a garage that shows you need all kinds of tools. And your wife says, you don't need any more, but you just keep getting them. We need all kinds of tools and instruments, some of us, Sam. God doesn't need tools or instruments, but He's delighted to use tools and instruments, me and you, to accomplish His purposes for His glory, that through us He brings back glory to Himself. And He does it in some of the most creative and fun ways. I mean, how creative is this? How miraculous is this, that Joshua points an arrow, a spear, a javelin, and at that time, God has the men take the city. That is so cool. And we get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of what God is doing in the world because He has chosen to use us. And He does it in some amazing ways. And when the men of Ai realized what was happening, it was definitely too late. We'll pick up in verse 20 where we left off. When the men of Ai turned back and looked, Behold, the smoke of the city ascended to the sky, and they had no place to flee this way or that, for the people who had been fleeing to the wilderness turned against the pursuers. When Joshua and all Israel saw that the men in ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and slew the men of Ai. The others came out from the city to encounter them so that they were trapped in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And they slew them until no one was left of those who survived or escaped. But they took alive the king of Ai and brought him to Joshua. Well, God granted his people great success. And this means 
that they were ridding that aspect of the land or that area of the land, they were ridding it of evil. They were imposing holiness in that area, ridding the land of the wicked. Israel's mission was to physically impose the Lord's will, the Lord's, Lord's ways on earth. They were His means of imposing His ways. And at times, God does this apart from means. We mentioned already in this series at some point the, the flood. We do well to remember that God spared only eight when He flooded the earth. Everyone else died. This was God acting directly, imposing His wrath on the face of the earth. And it was right for Him to do so. We see, looking ahead at the second coming, that when Jesus comes back, now certainly He will have His saints with Him, but there will be a lot of authority exercised by Jesus Christ Himself. Out of His mouth comes a sharp sword with which He strikes down the nations. This is going to be Yahweh's work directly. But here... He's using the means of His people to exert holiness. Without understanding the magnificent holiness of God, this probably seems sick to some of you, that God would have people do battle. I mean, we're talking men, women, children dying, being put to death in war by God's people. Well, this isn't some secular war. This isn't a humanly war. This isn't a battle that's taking place because of prideful desires in the hearts of men. This is a battle that is taking place because God is holy and He's establishing holiness on the earth. And it looks ugly when sin runs into holiness. When something that's fallen, when something that's impure comes into the realm of the righteous, that which is evil has to die. That which is fallen has to die. There has to be a death. And that's what's being shown graphically in this battle with AI. Now, our takeaway as the church cannot be that God is calling us to do the same thing. There have been groups, as you can think back through world history, there have been groups that took the same idea, that God wants them to go kill a bunch of people and establish a holy place on the face of the earth. But that's not the church's mission, is it? That's not what the church has been called to do. We're not Israel. We're not following Joshua. We're not living at this time. We're not going into that land. That is not our mission. This is not a command for the church. There are some groups even today who want to take passages like this and say that it's the church's job to impose God's way on the culture and to establish the kingdom of God on the face of the earth that will usher in the second coming of Christ. That's not quite it. That's not quite it. Now, there are some elements of that that are right, but we are not Israel. We are not going out to establish a kingdom and to do it all on our own and to make it all ready so that you know, the world will get better and better generation after generation to usher in the second coming of Christ. That's not what God has said is going to happen, and that's not our commission. We are to do spiritual battle. We know this from many passages. The full armor of God is probably the most explicit. We are to take up the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit. We are to do battle spiritually because our battle is not against flesh and blood. That's what Scripture says. Our battle is 
with that which is spiritual. And so we are to have eyes for the spiritual, and we're to do battle with the spiritual. Our commission as Christians is to take every thought captive, whether that's a thought within or a thought without. We bring it to Christ. Christ is the Lord. He is the one who is able to judge all thoughts appropriately. And yes, we are to interact with the culture. We are to influence the culture. And any influence that God might give you, yes, influence those around you. We might have the future president of the United States sitting in here today. Any volunteers? <laughs> but if God was to give this nation a Christian president, that'd be wonderful. That'd be a great and awesome thing. But we recognize that this is God's business, isn't it? And that God has told us that the end, it's going to be like birth pangs. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. And when Jesus returns, He is going to establish that perfect kingdom by striking down His enemies and ruling and reigning perfectly. We are not Israel, and we shouldn't think that we are as we read through passages like this. And we go on to see that Israel had to finish the job the right way. There were 12,000 in Ai that were put to death. It gives us a number in verse 25. 12,000 were put to death. Unlike Jericho, they were able, they were allowed to take the cattle, to take the material plunder. They were to kill all the people, and they were to destroy the city. It's likely that they were extra careful this time after what happened with Achan and Jericho. You can imagine that Israelites were watching each other more closely than they were in Jericho to make sure that no one took anything, and they killed the 12,000. It had to be done. All 12,000 in the city were put to death, and this was the punishment that they deserved. And again, this is a graphic reminder of what we know to be true. In Romans 6.23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Do we believe that? And of course, that ultimately means spiritual death. But the reason that we all live this finite life and we die is because there is sin in the world. In the beginning, there was no death for Adam and Eve. It was only through the fall that death entered the world, death through sin. And the wages of sin, what we have earned for ourselves because of our own sin, is death. And here's a graphic picture of that. Nevertheless, we do see a principle here that when people are willing to repent, that they can escape such immediate judgment. We saw that with Rahab back in chapter 2, didn't we? In chapter 2, Rahab expressed faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel. She had heard of what he had done, and she believed, and her family believed, and they are with Israel at this time. They were spared. They were the only ones spared from Jericho. None in Ai apparently expressed faith and repentance, and the end of this is death. And so there were two more memorials. Drop down to verse 28 with me. It says, So Joshua died and made it a heap forever a desolation until this day. So there's the first memorial. We see lots of memorials in the book of Joshua, and here's yet another one. Ai itself became a heap. And then verse 29, great heap of stones that stands until this day. That is more graphic imagery expressing a spiritual principle here, that all who are accursed of God, who have rebelled against God, who have sinned against God, their end is death. They are rightly accursed by the righteous judge. And this king Ai was hanged this way, 
and taken down this way according to the law. This is from Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. This is what the law says to do with cursed people. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So Joshua did this in accordance with the law. And now we approach the final section. It's a final scene of a bigger section, really, verses 30 to 35. It's a section that began all the way in chapter 5. After they crossed through the Jordan, the Jordan was miraculously heaped up so they could cross through on dry land. And remember what they first did when they got to the other side in Joshua chapter 5? When they miraculously went through the Jordan and they entered enemy territory in a land that was about to become theirs, the first things they did was observed the Passover and circumcised the males. And they did it in the other, other way around because you had to be circumcised to rightly observe the Passover. And that kind of entered a new phase of Israel's history. They've now come into their land and they are to make this land Israelite territory. And that means upholding the festivals and the rituals and, of course, the law. Not just the symbols, but the law itself. And that's what we're going to see in these verses Read with me verses 30 and 31. After destroying Ai, look at what Joshua does. It says, Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Well, Joshua saw that this was a fitting time to fulfill a commission that he was given by his mentor, Moses. And let's turn back and look at that together in Deuteronomy 27. It's the book right before Joshua. Just turn back a few pages. Deuteronomy 27, and we'll look at the first eight verses to see this commission. Moses was the one who led Joshua. Like I mentioned, it was his mentor. And this was a specific commission that was given to Israel. Deuteronomy 27, verses 1 through 8, it says, Then Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. So it shall be on the day when you cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God gives you, that you shall set up for yourself large stones and coat them with lime, and write on them all the words of this law. When you cross over, so that you may enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. So it shall be when you cross the Jordan, you, you shall set up on Mount Ebal these stones, as I am commanding you today, and you shall coat them with lime. Moreover, you shall build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not wield an iron tool on them. You shall build the altar of the Lord your God of uncut stones." And you shall offer on it burnt offerings to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings and eat there, and rejoice before the Lord your God. You shall write on the stones all the words of this law very distinctly. You think that was important to Moses? He said it multiple times just in that one passage. When you get over there, you are to write all the words of this law distinctly, make it clear. 
It was important to Moses that the new generation, the next generation, keep the law of God in view. Now, we don't know what exactly was written on those stones because that word law can mean many different things. We don't know if it was just the Ten Commandments. We don't know if it was a summary list of the 613 laws that existed in the law. We don't know if it was the book of Deuteronomy or all of Genesis through Deuteronomy. Can you imagine? chiseling all that out on those stones. We don't know exactly what it was, but the law was written down and preserved for the next generation. Israel had moved farther into the promised land, and they were gathering freely as they met here to do this, and they were reminded of the Word of God. We are often tempted, aren't we, in life, when we enter the blessing, when we receive the blessing, to forget the blessing giver. You think of the prodigal son parable, and he received his inheritance. He asked for it, and he received it. And then he went off and forgot all about the honor of his father. He ignored the honor of his own household, and he went out, and he was selfish, and he abused the gift. And every generation, each one of us, in all kinds of different circumstances, we have a propensity to accept the gift and forget the giver. And here Israel specifically was told to remember the law. Dale Ralph Davis, one of the commentators I'm reading through this series, he said this about this scene. By placing this covenant renewal ceremony here, the writer is saying that Israel's success does not primarily consist in knocking off Canaanites, but in everyone's total submission to the Word of God. It is as if he is saying, Stop the war and listen to the law of God. This is the most urgent matter right now. Moses had told Joshua to read the law before the people. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 11, just a simple phrase, Moses said, When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. And that's exactly what Joshua did. Look at the last couple of verses with me in Joshua chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. It says, Then afterward he, Joshua, read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. Well, I want to make a quick note before talking about something very important. It does say in verse 35 that there were strangers among them. This means that there were people who were not ethnic Israelites, who were not ethnic Jews, like Rahab and her family, who were picked up along the way. That's that Rahab principle, that along the way when someone repents of their sin and someone expresses faith in the one true God, that person was brought into God's family. And we don't have every detail of every single thing that happened on every single day during this conquest, but we can imagine that there were times where they would come across people who were living in the land and they said, we've heard of you. We heard what your God did to the Egyptians. We heard what He did at the Jordan. And we heard about what happened at Jericho. We want to go with you. That's what a wise person would say, right? We want to go with you. 
And so here we have evidence that that was happening. There were even strangers among them, but they were not exempt from this law. Just because they weren't ethnic Jews, that didn't mean they got to do their own thing. Here in Israel, they were told the law of God. This was the law over them, just as it was everyone else. But I want you to picture this. We skipped over a few details. You can read your eyes over this passage. There are two mountains where this is happening. There's Mount Ebal, and there's also Mount Gerizim. And those who were on Mount Ebal, half of the Israelites were sent over there. They were pronouncing curses from the law. And this is the way Moses set it up back in Deuteronomy. He said, this is what's going to happen. Go to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Those in Mount Ebal were pronouncing the curses of God. So Mount Ebal represented the curses of the law for those who disobeyed. And then the other half of Israel was on Mount Gerizim, and they were reading the blessings from the law. If you were to obey God's law, here are the blessings that would come forth. Mount Ebal was slightly bigger than Mount Gerizim, not hugely bigger, but a little bit bigger. These aren't very big mountains. They're nothing like the Wasatch Range here. But Mount Ebal was a little bit bigger, so the curses were looming a little bit larger. In between the two was about a 500-yard valley. That's about the distance between the two mounts. And it was somewhat of a natural amphitheater. We see that a lot of times in the Bible. They didn't have microphones like I'm using today. And so they would get into a geographically ideal situation where someone could speak and many could hear. And that's what's going on here. And you have curses and blessings being pronounced from the law. Now, we notice, too, that this altar that... Uh, Israel was instructed to, to build, it was placed on Mount Ebal. That's pretty interesting. You've got these two mountains that are representing two different things, and the altar was to go on Mount Ebal. They needed an altar. They, need to make, they needed to make offerings, to make sacrifices. Because as they failed to uphold the law, and they were then placed under the curse of the law, they would have to go back to the altar to make themselves right with God through sacrifice, wouldn't they? And they weren't to go, to go over to Mount Gerizim to make sacrifices. They were to go to Mount Ebal to make sacrifices. This mount that has been identified with the curse, this mount that has been identified with their sin, they were to go back to that mountain and to embrace their identity as sinners, lawbreakers, those who had distanced themselves from God because of their sin. They were to go back and make sacrifices there. And did you notice that these stones that were used to build the altar, they had to be uncut stones. Isn't that interesting? They had to be stones that no iron tool had ever touched, just raw as they are, pick them up and bring them over. You see, they were to go back to God without any of their own merits. When they went back to the altar... They weren't to be weeping over their sin, and as, you know, the, the, the tears are running down their faces and the snot's coming out of their nose, and they look up and say, boy, I helped make a real pretty altar. They weren't to have a thought like that in their mind. They weren't to look at that and think, what a beautiful humanly creation this altar is. They weren't to look at that and see any of their own merit. They were to only see their identity as sinners and the mercy of God that existed at that altar. They were only to see the sacrifice that was made in their stead for forgiveness of sins. It was reminding them of their sin, reminding them on their reliance on God's grace. 
They were to go back to Ebal continually. We don't come to God through Mount Gerizim. And some of you grew up in an atmosphere where you were instructed to get to God through your own righteousness. You were told to meet God on that mountain where the blessing is. To go to God and say, I've done it. Where's my blessing? No. God doesn't meet you there. God meets you in your desperate state when you have none of your own merits, when you are relying totally and completely with all of your being, you are relying on His mercy. And you look to Him and you say, I am unworthy. And you appeal to God through an external sacrifice. And you appeal to God through a sacrifice not made of yourself, not made by yourself, but someone else who was in your place for your sin. God meets you at the altar of sacrifice. And in our day, that's the cross. God meets you at the foot of the cross where sacrifice was made for sin, where you come and you say, I agree with you, God. I have rebelled against you. In and of myself, I have nothing good. I can't meet you on the mount of blessing. I have earned the curse. The wage that I deserve for my sin is death. And then you look to the one who died in your place, and in Him you find the blessing. And it's through His death, His substitutionary atonement on your behalf, that's where you find the blessing. We don't stand under the threat of the law, Christians. I'm so thankful for that. Because in Christ, He became a curse for us. Just as the king of Ai was hanged as a curse for all to see, we had another king who was hanged as a curse for us in our place, the curse we deserved. And we see ultimate fulfillment of God's justice in Jesus Christ. And we still come to God on Mount Ebal, owning our sin, doing nothing in and of ourselves to remove it. We come to God that way, yet we're free from the law. And we possess all the spiritual blessings in Christ, because in Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen. And we have freedom now to worship God, to be reconciled to God once for all, never again to go back to any kind of system of works, never to go back to any kind of curse hanging over your head. But Christ took what you deserved, that He could give you of Himself what we totally don't deserve. In the cross, we see the mercy of God and the grace of God mingled together perfectly in love. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And today we're going to remember that cross specifically. I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is another picture that we get of Christ's sacrifice. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. The apostle tells this church that had a lot of problems. He says, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. And hear, hear this sentence here, for Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover ceremony. 
this annual ritual that Israel observed to remember the sacrifice that was required for them to be spared from death in Egypt. Christ is the ultimate Passover lamb. On the cross, once for all, Jesus paid the final price that we might be absolutely free in God's grace. And this is the basis for our communion. When we come together and we partake of the bread and we drink of the juice together, we're remembering the sacrifice of Christ. We're remembering our Passover lamb and we're proclaiming his death until he returns. Because don't you know, it's good news that he didn't stay dead, but Christ rose again and he ascended into heaven and he's going to return. And until that time, as we're waiting for this glorious hope, we proclaim the death of Christ. And we don't just do it in our thoughts, we don't just do it by our words, but we do it in the church by our actions, by engaging in this symbolism that God has given us through the bread and the fruit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, Paul goes on to talk to this church and he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This is a spiritual activity, communion is. When we come together, we're being reminded of all sorts of things. We're, of course, being reminded of Christ's body that was broken for us on the cross and His blood that poured out. But we're also being reminded that this is communion. It's a union. It's a community event. We're coming together and we're taking from the one loaf because we are one body. We're coming together in unison, in one faith, in one Lord, with one baptism, because we have unity in this gospel message in the one sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And it's our practice here to, when we have communion to have people come through and to pick up the bread and to pick up a cup and to go back and sit together and wait. So that way we can have it all together at the same time. It adds to that experience of unity, doesn't it? This isn't something we come together to do individually. This is something we do collectively as we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And so here in just a moment, the music will begin, and if you'll come down this uh, path on this side of the room, and we can walk in front of the table, pick up bread and juice, and exit this side. And uh, after that, hold on to it, and we'll partake together. This is for all Christians. It's not just for members of this church or members of a certain denomination or something like that. It is for all people who have genuinely expressed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a serious matter. It's not something we do lightheartedly. It's not something we do while telling jokes. It's something that we do as we think about not only the death of the Lord, but what put Him there. And we consider the love of Christ, that He would do that on our behalf. And so let's make this a reverent event. Let's make it a community event. Let's make it a God-centered event.